Well, if we have a Bible, and your Red Pew Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 10. That is going to be found this morning. We're looking at the, the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, uh, page 1028 in your Bibles. We are in the middle of a sermon series that we have entitled People Together with God. And throughout the remainder of the month of July, we're going to be talking a lot, a lot about you know, togetherness. Like, what does it mean to be people together beneath God? And the topic of suffering is going to surface uh, off and on throughout the month of July. It's going to surface this morning. This morning, we're going to look at suffering through means of costly compassion. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Um, I'm not sure the church has had a lot to say about it. I grew up in church, and I, I did not hear much about the notion of, of suffering with Christ, what that even means, or costly compassion. We spoke about that off and on here so far in my time here at the church, but I'm not talking about the kind of unwanted suffering that comes from maybe sickness or, or you know, losing a loved one. There, there is real suffering there, and the Bible does have uh, great things to, to, to uh, equip us on how God uh, kind of breaks into our life through those times of suffering. I'm more or less this morning talking about the kind of suffering that comes when we willingly take on the burdens of someone else. Paul preaches famously in Philippians 10, uh, 10 through 11, when writing about knowing Jesus and counting all things as lost because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, he says famously in verse 10, he says, I want to know Jesus that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And it's so easy to say, yes, we want to know the power of the resurrection. I mean, that brought a dead man from the grave. Yes, Lord, give us such power. We want to preach and talk about that, about his spirit to show up in his, his great kingdom and resurrection power in our life. But then the very next part of the verse says that, and also that we may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's like, didn't you just say become like him in his resurrection? What about this death thing? Becoming like him in his death? What do you mean? Share in your sufferings? We don't really talk a lot about that part of the verse, right? What are you talking about, Paul? The fact is that as a society and even as a church, we simply do not have a good understanding of suffering, or I can say maybe a good theology of, under, of suffering. Uh, when others are suffering around us, we don't quite always know how to respond. The, the, the British novelist, Julian Barnes, uh, tried to put this into words after a really saddening experience in his life. 30 years of marriage, his wife Pat died from a brain tumor. Barnes was struck by how many of his closest friends didn't quite know how to talk honestly about his grief. Barnes said, some friends are as scared of grief as they are of death. They avoid you as if they fear infection. One friend advised him to go get a dog. Some other friends suggested that he go on a long vacation. Barely a week after his wife's funeral, another friend said, so what are you up to? Are you going to, uh, for a walk on the holidays? Barnes also described his friends who can't even bring themselves to mention his wife's name, and he calls them the silent ones. Barnes writes, I remember dinner conversation in the restaurant with three married friends. Each had known her for years. I mentioned her name. Nobody picked it up. I did it again and again. Nothing. Perhaps the third time, I was deliberately trying to provoke. 
They were afraid to touch her name. They denied the conversation thrice. It's not the suffering of the author that we're talking about today. It's the difficulty of his friends participating in his suffering. The love found on the cross of Christ speaks of such sufferings for others. Um, When we pick up our neighbor's grief, it's kind of like receiving their mail. Uh, I live on uh, Boxwood Road, and for some reason, some genius named a road right off of Boxwood Road, Boxwood Ave. They also just thought it'd be a good idea to give the same numbers as my street. So yes, my street number, I get, we, we used to get their mail often. I kind of let them know, like, this is crazy, right? So one day, I come home to a whole bunch of golf clubs on my front porch. Um, the problem with that is I've never stepped foot on a golf course. And I was looking and didn't quite know what to do with them, right? My neighbor's mail is unwanted. It doesn't really fit into my life. I don't have life patterns of golfing. I wouldn't know what to do with the clubs as they even showed up on my doorstep, right? But see, our, 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 our neighbor's grief is kind of like those golf clubs, right? But rather than golf clubs, say your neighbor shows up on your front porch and there's grief in their life that you've never experienced, that's heavy, that's complex, that's dark. Maybe they've been sinned against, abuse, who knows, right? And they're looking for a compassionate presence in their life. What do you do? It doesn't fit into your life. You don't maybe have time for that. You don't really have maybe the emotional energies you feel because you already have your own emotional stuff that you're working through. What happens when this person shows up? How do we respond? This is what today's sermon is about. It's a parable about costly compassion. It's probably the most famous parable in the scriptures, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's look into this. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. This is a word of the Lord. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood to test, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life is a loaded word, and generally speaking, it's a phrase that's kind of synonymous with kind of the Christian quip, you know, how can I be saved? It's also synonymous with the life of the age to come. In short, eternal life is the life that is in heaven. One day, heaven is coming to earth, read the end of Revelation, the ends of our Bibles, you'll see it. Uh, God will bring the good news of Jesus to its fullest fulfillments, and everything will be made new. No more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. John had so much to say about receiving eternal life, not only tomorrow, but receiving a glimpse of that life even today. John six forty seven is Jesus speaking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life, has, like now, like you have it now. This is an important thing to understand that will inform our time today. We have to realize that the belief in the reality of life after death, it imposes itself on our life today. The reality of life after this physical age, and indeed belief in reality of another age to come, means that perhaps there's something about that future 
that should dictate how we live today. After all, how does this life today impact the future age of our lives? There's that conversation that's brought up here. Um, it's, It's very common today, even among secular people, to have a fear of life after death. Um, uh, Shakespeare actually mentioned this, right? If, if you've, you've probably heard these words before in Hamlet, he says, to sleep, perchance a dream, a there's the rub, he says, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause, right? Gives us pause, a little bit of a what is coming after life, right? Even the most ardent atheists, they call it the, the ultimate test of atheism, it's death. Are you going to face your own death with still denying that there's anything after, right? But for the Christian, we don't have the pause of fear, but we should have the pause of considering how that future of that heavenly life that is when they're going to fully and finally inbreak into this world and throw away death forever and ever, how that future impacts our life today. The religious teacher knew that eternal, that eternal life of tomorrow had something, some call, some, some authority over his life today. And he was inquiring as to what that exactly was. So let's pay attention to how Jesus answered his question. Verse 26, he says, What is written in the law? That is what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, um, the Law of Moses, the first five books or so of your Bibles, really, in his mind, the whole of the Old Testament. He says, what is written in the law about this question? He said, how do you read it? The Bible scholar, scribe, religious expert here, verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So yes, law was the reference to the law of Moses. Jesus' question was an inquiry, right, for how the law, how the scriptures respond to his own question. The guy's response is famously known, we know now, it's as the great commandment, right? It's found in Leviticus 19.18, love God and love neighbor. For those with faith in God, for those who understand his plan of redemption and salvation, our lives must be marked by this great commandment. Jesus affirms this. He says, congratulations, like, good job. You got the answer right. Go and do it, and you will live. You will find life. That's what he means, that eternal life. You will live. Go and find it. You will find the life of heaven, the glimpse of heaven today, the glimpse of that eternal future through loving God and loving your neighbor. But this religious expert was not done. He had a question to try and maybe complicate the answer, right? Luke, the author of the gospel, adds a little clue as to what the problem was that laid within this Bible teacher. In verse 29, it says, but he wanted to justify himself. In other words, he had some tension with the answer that he knew. He's the one who said it. He had the right answer. He knew the right thing, but his heart wasn't quite okay with the right answer, right? He he knew the right Bible answers. In Sunday school, you know, he he would be the kid that knows all the the right answers, but his own heart was like, "Ah, I don't know about this. I have a little conflict and he wanted to justify himself, so he says, he asked Jesus, verse 29, and who is my neighbor? 
Love God, love neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Um, we had to look into just really quickly the world of this guy because it was a complicated world. Um, this was 2,000 years ago. We, we, you know, we, we've gone through this a couple of times here, but Israel was a, a, a kind of nation state within the broader empire of the, the Romans, right? It was kind of a colony of the Romans in a way. Um, and there was a, a, a broad uh, authority of non-Jews who ruled Israel, okay? And even if you want to go back before this, um, for some, uh, 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 in between the Testaments, right, there's been a lot of changing in hands of authority over Israel. And so throughout the years, ethnic Jews living in Israel found their homeland uh, filled with, with various other races, ethnicities, and um, the, the opinion amongst these Jewish kind of scholars and elders became questionable about who really begins qualifying as your neighbor. This is supposed to be the Jewish, you know, nation of Israel, but there, there's more and more non-Jews found amongst here. Like, well, are, are, are they our neighbors? Like, how, how do we define this? There's a conflict of opinion here. And this guy, this religious scholar, he's voicing that conflict of opinion. He's saying, like, is everybody around me really my neighbor? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? Let me, let me ask. Like, who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus, being the Son of God, he knows exactly what the guy's thinking. He knows why he's asking that question. I mean, you have to have some sympathy because the Romans were not the kindest rulers. They ruled with an iron fist. They ruled with their swords and their spears and their military armor and military might. I mean, yeah, it would be hard to see those men marching through your streets and think, oh, there's my neighbor. How are you doing? You know, I mean, you, you kind of understand what he's saying here. Who's my neighbor? So let's work through this famous parable here. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but it's obvious that Jesus is trying to be controversial, okay? And let's walk through how he's trying to be controversial. He loved to Jesus is teaching us that he loved to exaggerate and just make controversial points to kind of get our attention, okay? So if you were the Bible scholar guy talking to Jesus, your eyes would got bug-eyed. Like, what are, you, what are you saying right now? Like, this is his style, right? Um, Jerusalem's a mountaintop city. Jericho's down in the valley, okay? So there's a long road that goes up the mountain and down the mountain. It was hard to police. It was infamous for getting beat up and maybe getting robbed on that road. It was a little bit of a hike, and it was a little sketchy. So this guy was going down, then he gets beat up by these robbers, okay? And the guy was laying there barely alive, says the parable. Now, two people who passed by, the priest and the Levite, um, Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel. Um, not every Levite was a priest, but every priest was a Levite, if that makes sense. And nevertheless, they were still highly revered for their role in Israelite society, they were the guardians of the temple, the, the ones who served the temple. They were from the, you know, the blood of, of Aaron, the high priest, right? They, um, this was a, 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 uh, a the, the, the shepherds of Israel in many ways they were understood. And so surely it would be the shepherds that would want to stop. 
But of course, Jesus says, it was these two who didn't stop. The ones who would be expected to stop and help this man did not. Now, that would be shocking if you were that Bible scholar guy inquiring here. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, says the scriptures, as Jesus continued. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, the man, we presume, was Jewish. A few weeks ago, we talked about this at length. Samaritans Samaritans and Jews were not buddies. They were not friends. They had lots of religious conflict. Neither liked one another, neither considered the other as friends, much less neighbors, because the Samaritans were the half-breed Jews, the ones who centuries before intermarried with the invading enemies of Israel. They had their own Bible. They used to have their own temple that they worshiped God in separately. So this is very much the unexpected hero of our story, okay? Again, this guy was Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. This is the Israel society. This guy is not supposed to be the hero of this parable. It's a Samaritan. But nevertheless, Jesus makes him to be the quote-unquote hero. But that's not so much the point, okay? That's, there's something there, right? I mean, there's a, we could go into a whole sermon about the, the race relations beneath God's people, and, and perhaps we could. But this morning, I want to look at how Jesus ends it, which gives us kind of the clue as to the major emphasis that he's giving here. But anyway, verse 34, we'll get there in a second. He says this, The Samaritan, he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, the Greek is two denarii, which is a denarii's one day of uh, labor. So two full days of his paycheck, basically, he cashes and gives to the innkeeper, and he gave it to them. He says, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, to make sure we read this correctly, let's slow down. This is a parable, and this is extremely exaggerated, right? Um, Parables are rarely prescriptive. That means giving us commands of things that we should do. Sometimes they are. They're they're oftentimes descriptive, in which we are to draw some kind of inference from that would, you know, align our thinking, align our beliefs, align our heart, align our life. We have to kind of think through it and work through it. That's the, the brilliance of parables. There's scarcely just like this easy black and white answer. You're kind of left thinking, huh, that makes you think. And that's kind of what Jesus loves to do, talking to people, right? And this is one of those instances. This parable is descriptive of what it means to be a neighbor, to pick up someone else's suffering, even at great costs to oneself. The Samaritan in this story, in this parable, went above and beyond what would have ever been necessary for this man's recovery. He bandaged his wounds. He poured healing elements on his wounds. The man takes the prominent place on the Samaritan's donkey as he then walks beside and takes the man to the you know, hospital, essentially, to care for him. The next day, he, he cashes his paycheck for you know, two full days' worth. And then he goes a step beyond and to the innkeeper and says, I got to go, but when I come back, if it costs you extra to care for this guy, I'll pay for it. Now, everyone in Jesus' day would have heard that and been like, this guy's going to get taken advantage of. This guy's a fool. 
He can come back and the guys will say, oh, it costs, uh, you know, three times as much money as you put into it. You got you to gotta pay up. You said you would. Like, he could get totally taken advantage of here. That it seemed to lack some sensible response. Like, you don't just give a guy a blank check and say, let me know how much you want to charge. That's kind of what he did. But Jesus was pointing out, saying this guy's compassion was outrageous. I mean, it was, it was beyond sensible, but he cared so much. He's saying, whatever it takes to care for this guy, I don't care. Just take care of him, and I will gladly pay the bill. Even if he's taken advantage of in the process, because I don't care. Just make sure that he is going to be okay. Verse 36, Jesus says, which of these three do you think, this is how we know what this is really ultimately about here, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. That's the idea of the parable. Yes, there's, there is a race conversation to have there, but his main focus was answering the man's question, who who is my neighbor? The neighbor is the one who does neighborly things. It's a conversation beyond race and ethnicity, and it's to one of action. A neighborly is one who does neighborly things around them. Consider, though, how Jesus describes the compassion, right? It was a costly, financially costly, time-consuming compassion on display. We usually describe Good Samaritans as people who just kind of help complete strangers, and that's, you know, it's, it's like a cultural phrase now. Oh, what a Good Samaritan. Almost everybody knows what we mean by a Good Samaritan, somebody helping a complete stranger out. Certainly, yeah, that's, that's here. But yet he did much more than help him. As we said, he went above, he went beyond. His compassion was outrageous, and it was at great personal cost to himself. The question I have this morning is, when's the last time you were driven to be so compassionate that it hurts? That's what Jesus is trying to define a neighbor as. A neighbor is one who shows such great compassion to others, even to strangers, that it actually has a cost on themselves. That it's a heavy cost in the name of compassion. We're not exactly used to neighboring that way. If I polled all of us to even know the names of our neighbors around us, statistically, we only know about one third of Americans don't even know the names of their neighbors. You know, think about that, and we read the scriptures and we see the call of being a neighbor here, right? There are many voices in our society that call us to be compassionate, but few go as far as defining compassion as costly. What is it about the good news of Jesus that drives us to such a vision of costly compassion as a neighborly action? Here we are as a community of people in this room. We've been talking about what it means to be together as the people of God um, for some weeks now. If being a good neighbor starts here, which I think it does, how does the gospel drive us to costly compassion? The price ultimately matches the quality of our salvation. We, we, we have six children. Um, uh, five of those six are boys. And if something is not decent quality in our house, we will find out quickly. Um, true story, the window repair guy was in my house for the third time. 
because we, we have this old house, our panes are like paper thin, unless the door gets replaced, it's, it's a little tough. If you slam the door just a little bit hard, it cracks, right? And this, this is how, so the guy shows up with this like triple paned something that's like expensive, and he charged me like at cost, and he goes, my boss feels sorry for you. So <laughs> here's, and then no joke, I said, thank you, because since I called you last, we, we actually have another broken pain. <laughs> so can you go measure that one too? He hasn't even called me back yet. I think we're wearing him out. But just the idea of like, if we don't have something of high quality in our home, like it just doesn't survive, right? Well, the price of our salvation shows us why the compassion we have for others should drive us to give such costly quality compassion to others because these are human beings that the Son of God was willing to be hung and nailed to a cross publicly in a most shameful of manner to die for. Those are the people that he had in mind, and surely if that was at such great cost to him, that our compassion for them should match the cost that it gave to our Savior. If we want to be in his image, we bear the cross as we go about in our life. The quality of our love should be an image of the quality of the love of Christ. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18.19 says that we were not redeemed with corruptible, corruptible things like silver or gold, but rather we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The Son of God himself gave his life for you and I. That was the price of his salvation. And when he says the words, go and do likewise, here like the Samaritan, he's not talking from some ivory throne. He's talking as the one who just a few chapters after this would be driven by his compassion to literally give himself up for even his own enemies. So when we have opportunities to be compassionate towards others, is the gospel driving us to be willing to be deeply compassionate, even in the most costly manners? A couple of ways I want to break this down about the, 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 the compassion of the Samaritan we see here. Number one, his compassion cost him his time. The Samaritan's day was greatly altered. He probably, I don't know, he had, if he was anything like us, everything was already mapped out, right? He had no time to stop, but he did. Um, it's tough in our day and age. We have a million things, like our time has become a commodity that companies literally make money off of, right? Uh, all these smartphone app developers, if they have your attention, they get to make money. There's a million things out there vying for our time because they get to cash in on it. But compassion, it, it brings us to an awareness to say, maybe my time is, is up for grabs here if a need arises from someone around me from someone in my church or someone even in my neighborhood here? Are we willing for that, for, for your plans to be altered if the need were to arise? To have compassion for others may require the sacrifice of compassion on the altar of your time. Giving up our time for someone, it may not feel like a uh, meaningful, but if you ever had somebody just stop and show up on your doorstep when you needed something and you're like, wow, you're here. If that's ever happened to you, you know exactly how that feels. It's a humbling feeling to know somebody just stopped and showed up here and said, I'm here. What do you need? I can't tell you how many times 
that happened and has happened in my life. Number two, his compassion led him to get his hands dirty. He took pity. He actually gets down and he helps bandage this bloodied, beat up guy. He was the first one to do so. He was the first one who wrapped up his wounds. I'm sure some of the guy's blood and ooze was maybe only on his hands as he got down, right? Compassion should drive us to be willing to get our hands dirty for Jesus. It's not easy letting someone else's dirt get on your nice, clean clothes, right? But this is required of a people that have received such a great and costly compassion for Jesus. We have, we had so much dirt on us, right? And Jesus came down to earth and just jumped right in our dirt pile. Uh, I forget the guy's name in uh, Snoopy, not Snoopy, Charlie Brown, the dirt guy. Pigpen, yeah. Like that was Jesus like on the cross. So all of our junk just cloud of us, all of our dirt was just all over him, right? But when it's all over, we had nice clean clothes, right? I just compared Jesus to Pigpen. I never, I didn't write that one down. It happened though, it happened. But it's true, right? Are you ready to get your hands dirty for Jesus? Number three, his compassion cost him financially, right? Maybe your abundance thereof could help somebody's lack thereof. Medical bills, food, broken cars. We know there's always cost to people around us sometimes arises and we can assist in such. First, uh, and the last and fourth one here to, for us, sharing in the compassion of Christ for others. It may bring an emotional toll on you. As we close, as we think of Jesus' compassion that led him to literally sweat blood in the Garden of Eden, as he contemplated the Garden of Eden, it wasn't the Garden of Eden, it was the Garden of Gethsemane, as he contemplated the heavy price to pay for our salvation, as his compassion drove us to die, he literally was in such anxious straits, he was sweating blood. I want to close with a story from a man named Henry Nouwen. He's a Dutch, uh, he was a Dutch Catholic priest, theologian, author, born in the 30s, uh, and his youth was spent in post-World War II Holland. In post-World War II Holland, food was scarce. Everyone was merely scraping by as the world readjusted to its new reality, and oftentimes in his community, many people would go for long periods of time without food or meals. Henry once shared a story of how through love and loss he came to experience the cost of compassion at an early age. He says this, one of the most vivid memories of my youth is connected with a little goat given to me by my father to care for during the last year of the Second World War. The goat's name was Walter. I was 13 years old then and we lived in a part of Holland that was isolated by the great rivers from the D-Day armies. People were dying of hunger. I loved my little goat. I spent hours collecting acorns for him, taking him on long walks, playfully fighting with him, pushing him where his two horns were growing. I carried him in my arms. I built a pen for him in the garage and gave him a little wooden wagon to pull. As soon as I woke up in the morning, I fed him. As soon as I returned home from school, I fed him, cleaned his pen, and talked to him about all sorts of things. Indeed, my goat Walter and I were the best of friends. One day early in the morning when I entered the garage, I found the pen empty. Walter had been stolen. 
I don't remember ever having cried so vehemently in so long. I sobbed and screamed from grief. My father and mother hardly knew how to console me. It was the first time that I learned about love and loss. Years later, when the war was over and we had enough food again, my father told me that our gardener had stolen Walter and fed him to his family because they had nothing left to eat. My father knew it was the gardener, but he never confronted him, even though he saw my grief. I now realize that both Walter and my father taught me that day something about compassion. It certainly gives us an image of the cost of God the Father who gave his own son for us. Henry Nouwen experienced a small glimpse of that cost. And we are asked to be a people to bring such compassion to one another, to this world, where the cross is our light, even if it's hard and difficult. As we close, I want to call our, our worship team up. Right now, we're going to have uh, a time when we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us this morning. This morning, we heard a teaching about the practicing of our faith we cannot fully experience knowing God without embracing the life of his kingdom. We need his empowerment. The word this morning, um, it's hard, I'm aware. <laughs> it's extraordinarily challenging. Without the empowerment and presence and filling of his Holy Spirit, um, we can't live this way. So as the worship team comes up, we're going to take a few moments to pray. If I could ask for you to stand. If you need to stay seated, please stay seated. But if you could stand. We're going to take a few minutes to pray. And not just pray, but we're going to stop. We're going to ask God through His Spirit to come close this morning. Because this morning He wants to work in this room. He wants to work in your heart. So often we can rush through our services knowing the Spirit of God may have spoken to our hearts but we speed up through our time and we just leave. We need to take a minute to let our guard down a bit. And so if the Spirit has something to speak and to say and to minister directly to our hearts we are giving Him time to do so. Allowing His Spirit to penetrate us this morning for God to do His thing in this room. We will have people available for prayer after the the, the psalm, but can we take a minute and just see what the Lord has for us right now and let him speak to you. Um, Allow him to come close into your heart right now. Maybe something you heard this morning really penetrated deeply. Would you invite the spirit into that part of your heart right now that you have maybe kept him out of or didn't want him to own quite yet?